Hey, Erin, I've got a joke for you. Three scientists walk into a bar and it goes something like this. Hi, my name's Kate Rebellious. I'm a science journalist in the UK. I write for a number of magazines and newspapers, including The Guardian. My name is Martin Elhay. I'm a senior business development manager at the University of Melbourne. My name is Leon Wong, and I'm a patent and trademarks attorney. Hey, wait a minute. Didn't you say three scientists? But it's true. All of these people have not only studied science, but were scientists before they evolved or reinvented themselves. The punchline for now is we've got our three scientists walking into the bar, but if they weren't scientists first, they wouldn't be able to do their current jobs, which are journalist, business manager and lawyer. Hi, I'm Erin Grant, a PhD student in physics, and this is my first go at co-hosting a podcast. I'm learning on the job, which just happens to be one of the topics for today. My co-host is Dr Andy Horvath, a former scientist, lecturer, curator and broadcaster, and now a podcaster. She is a serial career reinventor, also another theme of this episode. We'll be your navigators for this episode of The Secret Life of STEM. So how do you go about reinventing your STEM career? And after all that study, why? Is a career change a slow cook or do you hold your nose and jump? Do you fall into it? Or do you fight for it? Is it a calling or a casual give it a go? An evolution or a revolution? Or just luck, right place and right time? Perhaps it's even a complete surprise to find yourself going down an unexpected fork in the road. Spoiler alert, it's all of the above. We went to visit Alan Sandal, an Australian politician at her office. Alan puts the science in politics. Well, I never, ever thought that I would go into politics. I have to say, I always wanted to be a scientist. Even in primary school, I remember each year I had a new area I wanted to go into. One year I'd say to everyone, I want to be a paleontologist. And the next year I wanted to be a geologist. And next year I wanted to be an ecologist. And I loved the idea that I would go and be a scientist and just the excitement of that. And I studied science and maths all the way through school. So I moved to Melbourne to to pursue a science career. So how does a passionate environmental scientist find themselves in, of all things, politics? To be honest, the thing that got me politically involved was the destruction of our environment and in particular climate change and learning about that at university and being so passionate about conservation and biodiversity and just learning that Actually, a lot of the scientists had the answers for us. They were doing great work. They were telling us what the problems were and what some of the answers were. And it was the politicians where the blockage was. And so I thought, well, if you really want to save the environment, yes, we need all the research. Yes, we need those solutions. But actually, even more than that, we need politicians who are going to listen. I think science is a way of thinking. There's this scientific method in thinking that I wish everybody had, actually, <laughs> because in politics there's so many lawyers or just people who've been political staffers their whole life, studied politics at uni, and they don't have that basis of this idea of relying on evidence or forming a hypothesis and then actually having to test it and see if it's true or not and changing your mind if the evidence shows you and the data shows you that something doesn't work. And that gets me very frustrated in politics and I talked about it in my maiden speech that I will always rely on the evidence. 
The Premier told us that he won't allow pill testing because of his common sense. Not because of advice from the Health Department, not because of advice or evidence from other professionals, not because of evidence from around the world where pill testing has actually been researched and studied very rigorously, but just because of his common sense tells him he shouldn't support it. Well, Premier, that approach is comprehensively irresponsible and just such an absolute shame. Premier, please listen to the evidence and stop blocking Victorians' access to pill testing. And sometimes it can be counterintuitive, but that scientific way of thinking is useful across politics. So whether you're talking about what works in keeping people out of jail or what works in keeping people off the streets or what works in conservation, you really, there's often evidence. And if you've got good experiments, good hypotheses that are then tested with data, you can get to some quite innovative solutions. But often politicians just rely on what we've always done in the past or what their ideologies tells them they want to do rather than actually looking at the evidence. Alan is now deputy leader of the Greens and was recently re-elected for a second term. Raw science is about evidence-based thinking. And, as Ellen found, it can be hard to convince others that this mindset works for politics too. I like to think that we're having an impact. Definitely over the last four years we've had a lot of successes. And I don't know whether that's the power of persuasion. Most often it's actually just the power of raw politics and threatening to take seats off one of the parties, threatening their power is actually what gets them to sit up and listen rather than actually listening to the evidence, which really is something that should change. I would much prefer that they actually sat down with the evidence and made good decisions that way rather than just relying on votes. But sometimes you have to play that game and show them how they're going to lose votes if they don't do something sensible. Let's meet Martin Alhay, a senior business development officer at the University of Melbourne. But what does he actually do? We're looking for um, uh, opportunities to grow business, but in the university context, it's pretty special. So in effect, what I try to do is to take the university's discoveries and capabilities and try to project them to the outside world. One of Martin's current business development projects is a better treatment for human lice. That came from researchers working on sheep lice. I feel sorry for the sheep. They can't itch themselves like we can. But hopefully in the future, no one has to itch the nits. Martin started life as a full-blown laboratory research scientist at the CSL, Commonwealth Serum Laboratory, and then at the pharmaceutical company Pfizer. I do have a PhD. I did my PhD in immunology quite some time ago now. I then had uh, a few jobs as a postdoc, um, one of them overseas. I got a job um, sort of like uh, with an agency, which got me a job in industry, got me a bit of exposure. Next thing you know, I was at CSL. And uh, that set me up for uh, 15 years. I worked for CSL and Pfizer. So I was still a laboratory scientist, although obviously as time went on, I was... Um, a product team leader in R&D, and eventually, of course, you pick up promotions and management responsibility. And uh, then come 2013, a friend of mine phoned me and said that he'd just left a job at the University of Melbourne and that uh, he'd sort of primed the potential employer to think about me as a potential replacement. I'd been working in industry. I had been an academic. And within industry, I dealt with a lot of university people licensing technology from them. If we followed Martin around for a day, which we won't because that would be awkward, we would catch him 
visiting an academic to hear about a new invention that they would like to disclose to the university and running through that story with them, trying to understand what it is, and then setting them off on a path of getting that invention uh, developed, whether patented or protected in some way. I spend a lot of my time translating the language of the scientists and academics through to the outside world. So Martin found himself in the ideal position, translating research science and developing it for society. He is the de-jargonator. De-jargonator. There are quite a few other jobs that need de-jargonators. Who did that? And we'll hear more about that later. But there are challenges in reinventing your career. There was a lot to learn and there are a lot of things that I didn't have when I first started. And uh, I might even say that I'm still learning. But even with a PhD, there can still be some gaps in your knowledge. Understanding what were sorts of the, the terms and the sorts of things that would go into contracts and agreements, these are things that are not normal for scientists, research scientists, to have to deal with. And in learning about that and learning what is a good deal, I've been able to uh, sort of do better work with the university. So it's one of those things where you, I've picked it up, there's been a bit of formal training as well, but it's certainly a gap in my knowledge was that sort of the hard, really boring redlining a document type thing. But that's okay, and I work with lawyers and uh, contracts people who are very generous at the university and help us out. Martin tells us about retraining in business skills. I did do what might be regarded as an MBA light from RMIT when I was at CSL. Uh, it was a diploma in frontline management. Um, that gave me a lot of information and, and built some skills which I used as a scientist but then I found it was very useful when I left and became a business development person. There's a, a lot of um, learning from just the experience, making mistakes, of course, and uh, I've made a number of mistakes, and uh, you learn from those. The one thing I learned from industry is if you do make a mistake, you tell people early. You never walk into the boss's office with a failure story without the backup plan and the, what you're going to do about it. One of the things I learned from industry is that you plan for mistakes and failure, and um, if you have a backup plan, then you can usually succeed. But um, I think that's something we can teach our academics as well, is that failure is not the end of the world and that, in fact, you learn from it. And, in fact, that's part of the process. Love the backup plan idea. And I think it applies to careers and life itself. A lot of people like to plan their careers. And uh, I know that with uh, younger people that there's a real need to see where we're going to be. I've got to admit that I fell into this somewhat. I love doing English. I love doing geography. I love doing physics. I love doing chemistry, music and art. I was passionate about doing the sciences, but equally I, I loved other subjects too. What happens if you can't decide what to study? What if you are like Kate Revelius and like both the sciences and the arts at school? How do you navigate your way? In the end, what I thought was, you know, I love reading, so I could sort of still continue my love of English in other ways. I felt like I could pick up things like geography and history again in other ways, but I felt like science was the one thing I probably couldn't teach myself and would be hard to pick up later. I had brilliant science teachers, which, you know, that inspired me that, that I wanted to carry on learning with them. And I'd been advised that with science, 
the world was open to me. There were so many different career options. So it just seemed like a both an exciting, um, a fun and a sensible choice. I'm forever somebody who can't quite make up their mind um, and I'm not very good at specialising in any one thing. I'm a bit of a butterfly. And when I did my degree, I did it in natural sciences, which is, meant that I could dip into lots of different sciences throughout my degree. And I kind of narrowed it down to geology, but I still loved climate. So by the end of doing my degree, I thought I want to do a bit about what the climate was like in the past. And I want to see what it's like being a proper scientist by doing a PhD. When I started doing my PhD, it fairly quickly became apparent to me that I was probably a bit impatient and perhaps a bit slapdash to be a, a real scientist. But I was still fascinated by what everyone else around me was doing. And I still loved science. And I went on a course during my PhD to learn about how to communicate what I was doing. And some journalists were running that course. And when I was on the course, I thought, I really like your job. <laughs> so I realized that what I really liked doing was talking about science and being nosy about what other scientists were doing. And I'd always loved reading and writing, so being a journalist kind of slotted all those things together. Today, she introduces herself as... Hi, my name's Kate Rebilius. I'm a science journalist in the UK. I write for a number of magazines and newspapers, including um, The Guardian, New Scientist, Cosmos magazine, Archaeology magazine, some websites... I love writing about earth sciences, archaeology, climate, environment. But in all honesty, I write about any science and it's all fascinating. But it wasn't all smooth sailing to get there. I had to do a lot of knocking on doors and sort of begging people to trust me and, and try taking a risk by letting me write something for them. So I probably had a couple of years of struggling with it and, and trying to get my work recognised and to find editors that I could work with. I entered some science writing competitions and I managed to win one of those and that gave me a real leg up and helped me to meet some of the editors who I would eventually go on to work with. I knew it was a career that I really, really felt I wanted to do and that I would enjoy. And, I mean, there were times where I thought, oh, I could just have a, a normal job that was nine to five and I could, you know, work on a supermarket cash out and it would be so much easier. But when I did get those little glimmers of hope, when somebody gave me a piece of work, the buzz that I got from it and the excitement and the honour of being able to talk to some amazing, intelligent scientists about what they were doing or to even go and meet them and see what they were doing was so great. Those little glimmers of what it could be like were what kept me persisting with, with making it my career. Kate has some advice for aspiring science journalists. I think the main thing is to read, listen, watch, enjoy a lot of the material that you would eventually like to be contributing to so that you have a real feel for what's out there and what people are looking for. But definitely, you've got to be passionate about it. So I think 
it, you very likely will have ended up studying some science in order to be a science journalist. And you may do some journalism training as well, which would definitely be really helpful. Excellent advice. I guess through Kate's love of English and love of science, she was able to do her ultimate career mashup. The writing was on the wall. For you arts lovers, our next episode will cover how you can steam your way into STEM. Each episode of The Secret Life of STEM has a uni student who demystifies something in the world for us. This time it's you, Erin, doing the reverse engineering. You go, girl! Hi, my name is Erin Grant and I'm a Master of Science graduate from the University of Melbourne. I did my research in the School of Physics with the Biosensing Group. I'm interested in interdisciplinary research and robust science communication, which is where I think I'd like to take my career in the future. The question I'd like to answer today is, how does a wireless charger work? You've probably seen the ads popping up for new ways to charge your phone that don't require any connections between the device and the charger. In fact, there's this ad for a new phone that I've seen so many times recently that actually enables one phone to charge another. But how is this possible? Normal chargers have a cord through which electricity is clearly conveyed from power points to our devices. But how is it possible to transmit energy through the air? It's easy to see this type of thing as essentially magic, but the science behind it is actually well understood. To achieve wireless charging, energy is transferred using an electromagnetic field by what is known as electromagnetic induction. The first step to achieving induction is to get yourself a bar magnet. Now I'm sure everyone has spent a lot of time playing with magnets, and the reason that they're fun is that they have an invisible magnetic field surrounding them. If you've tried to push two magnets together, you'd know that this field becomes weaker the further apart the magnets are. And what's really cool about them is that if you move a magnet around or near a metal wire, the electrons in the wire will feel the changing strength of the magnetic field and be forced to move. Electrons that are all moving in one direction are known as a current, and if there is a current formed in our wire, then we've transferred it some energy. And that's electromagnetic induction. This is the principle of how wireless charges work. In the charging base that we plug into the electrical socket in our house, there is a magnet that is wrapped in a coil of wire. This coil is important because when we plug it in, it will increase the magnetic field that's around the magnet. It also means we don't have to physically move the magnet to induce a current in our device. Instead, we can just reverse the direction of the current in the coil, which has the same effect as moving the magnet. So to recap, Supplying electricity to the coil of wire that is wrapped around our magnet will create a changing magnetic field that creates a current in our device. This means that we've given it the energy that it needs to charge its battery. If it's so easy, why haven't we been using wireless chargers for years? Well, you actually need a large number of coils around your magnet to transfer the required energy to charge a phone. A wire that's thin enough so that it can be wrapped around our magnet lots and lots of times has actually only been achieved recently. So there you go. In the years to come, when we're all transferring charge between our devices at parties or out and about, and someone will inevitably ask, how on earth do these things work? They're like magic. You can say, no, actually they're powered by invisible electromagnetic fields. I'm Erin. Good luck in your science adventures. And don't forget to charge your phone. Wireless charging seems just like the invisible energy you get from going to events, looking for new opportunities and even retraining. Do you think some people feel as though they have invested too much time and money to change careers? Possibly, but reinvention does and can happen by design or by default. You can combine science with anything. Pick anything. 
Hmm. Okay. How about science and drama? You can be a science show presenter. Science and sport? You can be a physiotherapist or a trainer. Science and law? A patent attorney. Like our next guest, Leon Wong, who has a PhD in organic chemistry, but decided to change direction and study some patent law as well. A patent attorney is someone who basically helps people to obtain a patent for their invention. Because the patenting process is quite difficult sometimes, and there's a lot of things to know because it's basically based on the laws of each country that you want to obtain your patent for. So it requires a detailed knowledge of the patent laws of each country. In addition to a science background or, or a technical degree, to become a patent attorney, you need a basically a master's in intellectual property law. Or you could probably get it via a normal law degree. So my subject is organic chemistry and my degree is a PhD. You probably don't necessarily need a PhD, but I found that the PhD really does help. I mean, the stuff that I learned during my PhD, I'm using it every day. Organic chemistry is really fascinating, but it's hard work and it takes a long time to get results. Uh, And, you know, the goal of any organic chemist, I suppose, is to make a molecule that cures cancer or or cures HIV or or any disease, really. But that's a really long process. That takes so much effort just to make one molecule. And then of the, let's say, 10,000 molecules that you do actually make, maybe only one of them will get through to the clinic. This is true for all science, really. But when it works, it's super exciting. While that's a very worthwhile effort to make, you could easily spend your life doing that. I felt that uh, I would probably prefer to devote my energies to see what else there was along the way besides research that I could help. And that's why I turned to patent law. And being a patent attorney allows me to help in that process of getting molecules from the research bench into the market. Some of these molecules could be worth billions of dollars one day. So they often tend to write some very big specifications that that run into the thousands of pages. One pattern that Leon's company worked on was for the Swing King. Half tennis ball, half cricket ball. It's now safe from imitators. Life has many random events. And yes, luck does come into it. But as Pasteur said... Chance favours the prepared mind. Most of life is just turning up. If you're turning up, you're more likely to be in the right place at the right time for some luck. That's one of the reasons Ellen Sandal likes to get out into the community. I spend a lot of my time going around to schools and encouraging people to stay in science, but then also use that scientific thinking in whatever other field they go into. So every year I give an award to a young woman in science in all the high schools in my electorate. And I do that to say that I want more women in politics, I want more women in science, I want more women in decision-making, but I also want more scientists in public decision-making spaces and just trying to spread my story and spread that word. What advice does Year 10 Ellen remember hearing from her favourite teacher that she still thinks about today? Whatever you do, yes, go and do other interests, but 
always keep that stream of science and maths in your formal education because it opens so many doors to you. And even if you don't know, you you know, if you don't want to be a mathematician, even if you don't want to be a physicist or a chemist or a biologist, just having that scientific knowledge will open so many doors to you. And that's exactly what it did. And I'm really glad that I took her advice and stuck with it. That's the maths formula. Study science, add some perspiration and combine with another discipline. Voila, your world is bigger. As we've said before, nothing you do or learn goes to waste. Wishing you luck for the future you. Thanks for listening to The Secret Life of STEM. This series was made possible by the University of Melbourne. Time for some credits. Thanks to everyone who shared their stories. My co-host for this episode was Erin Grant. Thank you, Erin. Sure thing, Andy. Reverse engineering segment on wireless charging was from Erin Grant with editing and sound design from Sylvie Van Wall. This podcast is produced and edited by Buffy Gorilla. The supervising co-producer and scientific advisor is Dr Andy Horvath. That's me. Additional production support from Arch Cuthbertson. Erin, I've got a joke for you. Okay, give it to me. Okay, three scientists walk into a bar. The bartender asks them, what do you have? The first one says, they'll have an H2O. The second one says, they'll have an H2O too. The third one said, no, wait, you can't give the second one hydrogen peroxide bleach, H2O2. That'll kill them. (laughs) 